Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. if you like, brought up with a lot of my magical practice in the past, was that, oh, you've got the everyday world and you've got magic, which is kind of up there right. or out there somewhere, but it's, the two are not joined. What I increasingly became interested in as, as I progressed was this idea that, well, actually, magic is everywhere. So this is where we, like, get pretty. How's it shape this morning? Hello, everybody. Ciao on here. And I'm in this beautiful English garden with this lovely, luxuriously maned mage, Phil Hine. Nice to meet you, Phil. Nice to meet you too, and it's lovely to be here. I was looking on YouTube for any interviews that you've done, podcasts, and I came across two really cool ones. One was with Gordon White a couple of years back. Yeah. Um, it sounded like you guys were at like a pub or something like that. We were at home, I think. Oh. Came around my house. My imagination was that you were just like getting sloshed at a pub, so I'll just... Unfortunately <laughs> not. But there was another interview that you did, and it was with... Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name, but it was a very fascinating interview. I think that he knew a lot about Tantra. I'm sorry to that person, but I listened to both of them yeah. while I was putting on my makeup. First of all, guys, if you don't know who Phil Hine is, well... He's written these books about chaos magic, and now he's written chapbooks for yeah. chakras, tantra. Please explain to us what tantra is, because I think a lot of people are going to be like, you mean like tantric sex? Yes, please. That's a $64,000 million question, what is tantra? It's an Indian religious system that mm. um, started to develop around the, in the early centuries um, AD. Um, it's an esoteric religious system. Um, say it's like the, the esoteric wing of, of more outward religions. It has many different traditions. I guess what's important for me about Tantra is uh, it's an approach to living. It's an approach to living that's radically different from a lot of our Western occultism. Um, for me, a key element of it is a, is a kind of like living joyfully, finding wonder in the ordinary. I think um, most Westerners, when they hear Tantra, Obviously, they think of like sex. They don't think of it as anything spiritual per se. They see it truly as like a hedonistic thing. So, just to make that differentiation, the association of, of, of tantra with sex is um, something that came out of the, the the Western encounter with India, if you like. The way that people within the tantric community tend to distinguish it is that they talk about classical tantra. Mm -hmm comes out of India, it's largely rooted in um, a living religious tradition and a set of texts, and Neo-Tantra, which is this emphasis on, on sacred sex and hedonism, and the two things are kind of completely different. You know, I used to confuse, like, I guess Neo-Tantra and Classical Tantra, and then I saw this article written by this amazing scholar, his name is Dr. Harish Wallace. Oh yeah, I know him. 
yeah, yeah. like uh, he wrote this article about how like Westerners are completely fucking up the chakra system mm -hmm. and uh, taking out what the chakras really are about, which is like they're basically placeholders for gods. Thing is, is that most Westerners don't know this. No. Well, tantras can be very difficult to approach. I think what what Christopher Wallace is doing is excellent because he's making um, traditional textual um, teaching material accessible to a modern audience in a way that very few people have done. Really, it's tricky because people people have so many different ideas about what tantra is. One of my big research interests has been uh, trying to work out how those stereotypes arose out of the, like the British colonial encounter with India. There was a kind of sexualization of, of India going on. Uh, India was seen as, as um, you know, this kind of like wild country where people did weird shit. If you look, in, if you look at a lot of Orientalist writings about Tantra of the 19th century, you find the whole of India is, is kind of like sexualized, is this wild Kama place. Sutra. There were people in the West who wanted to kind of critique, if you like, Western values about sexuality and ethics and morality, and they saw India as a place to do that. One thing I've been looking at recently is um, Victorian pornography about India, and how India is represented as, as this place where, you know, people couldn't go off and do things that they wouldn't be allowed to do in England. Oh my God, so India was kind of like the Thailand. What you start to get in the 19th century is the beginnings of sexology. And a lot of early uh, Western sexologists, like Ivan Bloch and Hirschfeld, uh, got very interested in the Karma Sutra and in India. And gradually you got this kind of like association between sex and Tantra building up. Mm. And that was all given a huge boost in the 70s, mm. when you get the first waves of kind of like populist gurus coming over here, like Osho and so forth. And they really pushed this idea that, that Tantra was not a religion, it was not, um, if you like, a, a magical system, it was all about sex and doing what you want. And nowadays, um, you know, Tantra has become associated with wellness culture, uh, and it's seen as a kind of like a system of healing. And yes, it's true there are Tantric texts that deal with healing, but they're not really like that kind of self-healing uh, thing that we have in the West now. That's so interesting that now all these ancient arts that maybe became popular through the 60s and 70s, uh, maybe the bastardized version to sort of appeal to the yeah. youth, now it's going back to the roots, it seems. I, it does seem that way to me. I think that's happening in, in Western magic. There's uh, been a lot of focus on early um, modern magic in the Renaissance and the Grimoire traditions. I know Jake Stratton and Kantzman do a lot of work on that. And what we have, uh, apropos of Tantra, is a lot of the textual material that, you know, has, has been known about for quite some time but hasn't been translated, is now being translated and, and put into focus. And people are kind of like less interested in, say, books that are written in the 60s and 70s and 80s from a Western point of view about what Tantra is. And they're actually getting for the first time what the tradition itself says. You know, what the great masters and thinkers of this tradition wrote about the tradition itself. Mm, like going to the source text. Going to the source text, yeah. That's and realizing that, you know, Tantra is not just something that uh, has been appropriated by the West, but it's also a living tradition itself. It's a living tradition. I think yeah. a lot of people might be surprised to know that. There are Tantric temples all over the world. There's a big one in New York. There's a Tantra temple in New York? Yeah. 
done a huge Indian temples all over London. Mm. I don't know if any of them are tantric oriented, but certainly there are uh, Hindu temples in the United States uh, where there are modern tantric practitioners that can lie in charge. How can we compare like tantra to, let's say, Hinduism? Can you compare them? Um, not without going into a lot of historical stuff that might. It's tricky because if you read some scholars, they will say that, that Tantra actually emerged before Hinduism as we know it today. Tantra's influenced Hinduism hugely. So basically, India is not just all Hindu stuff. Yeah. There's lots of other things there too. Isn't that where Buddha like, got his start? Like, it was in India, right? Yeah. So... And you, you get Buddhist Tantra. There, uh, also Jain Tantra. And Jain Tantra. Um, Jainism is the religion where it's like you can't even kill a hand, right? Obviously there's more to it than that, but that's yeah. what everybody thinks about. When I was reading and also like watching your interviews, I, I realized that your background is kind of... First, okay, let's start with this. I have notes on, okay, it says here, youth. Young, Austin Osmond Spare, Theosophy. <laughs> Those were the notes that I put down. Okay, well, <laughs> let, let's start at the beginning. How yes. did I get into magic? Yeah. Um, I thought magic was bullshit until I was about 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. All right, rubbish. Uh, and then one, one day, I was a kind of nerdy kid. You know, I wasn't into sports or anything like that. Um, I was sitting in the school library, and they had this thing called Man, Myth and Magic, which is a kind of big collection of you know, witchcraft and magic through the ages. And I was just leafing through it idly, looking for nude pictures, as you do when you're a 16-year-old right. guy, you know. Or even now, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I found this picture by Austin Austin Spare. Uh, at the time, I'd been reading some Jungian stuff. And for some reason, I, although I can't remember anymore, this picture clicked with me. I made a connection between the Jungian um, stuff I'd been reading in this picture. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something in this whole occult shit after all, you know. Maybe it's not just all nonsense. But what was it about that picture? I, I can't Do you remember. remember. I can't remember. I, all I remember is I was looking for pictures of nude witches to old book. And I found this Austin Austin Spare picture and I thought, wow, wow, you know. So I then went to my local library and mm -hmm. uh, started looking through all the occult books I could find. And a lot of them were theosophical texts. You know, Madame Blavatsky, Annette Besant. What's theosophy? Um, Theosophy is a occult movement that started up in the late 19th century and was extremely influential. And I, in fact, I, one of the first occult fraternities, if you like, that I joined was the Theosophical Society. The, Theos the Theosophical Society was a worldwide movement. They had branches all over the world. They were extremely influential in many, many ways. Mm. Um, in India, in, in the UK, and in America. Key members of the Golden Dawn, uh, like W.B. Yeats, started off in the Theosophical Society. Uh, they had this vision of universal brotherhood, you know, of bringing all races together, and also of unifying science and religion. In a lot of ways, they were like cutting edge. Like They were like social but, justice warriors in a lot of ways. Uh, they were, because a lot of them were very interested in um, what, was, what were the pressing social issues of the day, like the place of women, for example. Mm. Uh, some, theos some theosophists were suffragettes. Um, a lot of them were involved in, in politics of various kinds. Uh, Annie Besant, who was an English theosophist, 
um, was the most infamous woman in England. She uh, was involved in uh, the Fabian Society. She it's was, a Fabian Society. Uh, she was a socialist. Um, she was, in fact, the first um, president of the Indian National Congress. So these, these were occultists, if you like, who, who were major players in a lot of the stuff that went down in the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in, in politics, influence on the arts and so forth. Also, a lot of occult ideas that circulate nowadays started off with the Theosophical Society. Things like, you know, karma, reincarnation, past lives, thought forms, yada, yada, yada. I joined the Theosophical Society and they sent me a little magazine and a little badge and it was kind of cool in a way, you know. And I thought, wow, you know, this is all really amazing stuff and this was all going on in the late 19th century. What are they writing about now? And well, they're still around. They're still around. And of course, when I, when I started going to Theosophical Lodge meetings in, in, in the early 1980s, uh, I found that actually to a large extent it was still going on about stuff that had been done 50, 60 years ago. Hmm. And, and they were all really old, you know. I went to this Theosophical mm -hmm. Society meeting in Leeds and uh, this guy goes to me and he says, oh, you're a student. And I, I was at the time and he said, what are you studying? And I said, oh, psychology. And he said, oh, William James. He was like a 1930s. Psychologist and I said, well, we've gone on a bit since then. I think I was the only member under, under about 30, you know. Wow, you're so, a fresh mate. Yeah. But and the good thing about going to the Theosophical Society was that I met this other young guy. I think he was uh, doing a PhD on Theosophy. And he said, oh, do you know this? Have you heard of this place in, in Billy Lodge Road in Leeds called The Social Apprentice? And I was like, no, what's that? And he said, oh, it's in a cult bookshop. And I was like, right. <laughs> And I discovered the social apprentice, which is kind of like a little backstreet mail order place um, in Leeds, and that kind of gave me my intro in, into the occult proper, if you like. I do remember hearing that you took a correspondence magic course back in the pre-internet days. Um, one of the ways you one of the ways you could learn magic if you didn't if you weren't fortunate enough to meet people was to do a possible correspondence course. And I did a postal correspondence course with this uh, magical order called the Order of the Cubic Stone. And it was all kind of like capitalistic stuff. I would you know, do my little exercises and then get feedback from my mentor. And uh, I remember really upsetting him because I was starting to ex experiment with sigil magic. A lot of people are going to be like, wait, sigil magic was there before chaos magic? Oh, yeah. yeah. I first encountered uh, Lieber Norway, Pete Carroll, and Ray Sherwin's Book of Results around about 1978-79. Um, they'd started this magical order of the Illuminates of Thanistros, I think, was around. But nobody was really talking about chaos magic as a thing. That didn't come till about, I would say, the mid-80s. There were a, f a fair number of occult groups around. Mm -hmm. um, but at that point, I hadn't really met that many occultists. Mm. You know, I'd, 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 gone, I'd moved to Huddersfield, which is a town in north of England. Um, to do a degree in psychology, and that's where I met, you know, actually other people who were really interested in the occult and actually practiced magical stuff. You know. Until then, I hadn't really met anybody. I'd, I'd joined the Theosophical Society, but it had all been kind of like reading these weird magazines. And it was, but it was through the Theosophy that I, I found this occult bookshop, and it was through knowing people on the course who were practicing magicians that I actually started to circulate within the occult proper rather than the kind of like outer edge of it. So when you were doing this correspondence course, yeah. 
you were doing like actual magic spells. Yeah, I was doing the middle pillar and the banishing ritual of pentagram and all that kind of jazz. You know? How'd you find it? Um, it was interesting. I got I used to get really nervous because I was kind of thinking, shit, if I do the ritual wrong, something horrible's going to come out of the skirting board and stitch me right up, kind of thing. You know, as you do. And I remember one time I was, you know, uh, lying in bed doing a banishing ritual on the astral plane, as in lying in bed. Uh, and I fell asleep before I finished it. I was, in the morning, I was like, oh God, I didn't finish the ritual before <laughs> I fell asleep. Oh no, what's going to happen? I've noticed that a lot of magicians who have really good results, they often started out doing years of just like very basic practices. Uh, banishing practices, things like that. I, I think actually a lot of what I do still do is fairly basic. You know? And you know, you get this whole distinction between basic and advanced, and I think that's a really false distinction. Uh, instead, I like to think you have core practices, and then you have kind of like the perhaps more complicated stuff. But core practices are things that you do continually, that visualization, you, know, you do visualization continually uh, until it becomes just like a, a habit that sinks in below consciousness. I've met a lot of people who go, Oh, yeah, that's basic stuff, I don't want to bother with that. I want to go straight to the nitty gritty, I want to do the hard stuff, I want to do the rituals that last 20 days and invoke God and all these angels and all that shit. And I think, well, why not just do something, you know, that's easy? Because it doesn't seem very fun. It doesn't yeah. seem magical. Well, like ma magic, magic is where you find it, you know. Mm. I mean, this, this, is, this is a magical space. Mm. You know, we, we might walk around the corner and, and have an encounter with a fawn or a troll or something, you know. You just have to open yourself to the possibility. In one of your interviews, you mentioned how magic is basically putting yourself in a wacky mind space yeah. in case wacky shit happens and you'll be like, oh yeah, of course, wacky shit. Because I was mm. in that mind space to accept it. Yeah. Now, I am still an atheist, mm. so I started off as like a totally like, we're talking hardcore atheist. Yeah. So for me, this entire like magical mindset thing has been very difficult to accept. And you started off like as a teenager being like magic is bullshit. Yeah. How did you change that mindset? I think very, very gradually. Well, doing the, the psychology course was interesting because that kind of like gave me a, a handle on it, thinking okay, magic is like a branch of psychology. Mm -hmm. And then I started to have experiences that I couldn't quite fit into that mindset, if you like. So, again, thinking about this, this, this would be like early 1980s. I woke up one night and there was like this heavy weight on the bed and this like red mist all around me. And I was like, shit, I can't move, you know, what's going on? So I, I mentally projected a, a, a pentagram and it went, this is not psychology, this is not all in my head, you know, this is, this is real. And that kind of shocked me out of that, oh, uh, it's all part of psychology. So I, I think through various experiences I began to accept that, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth than what we know of what kind of thing, you know. And what became increasingly important for me is, is creating, a dis if you like, a, an emotional space for that, allow that to happen. You were able to, I guess, naturally get into magic because you had first-hand experience. Yeah. You did it. You had results, or something happened, and then you're like, oh, well, I experienced it. So. Yeah, so, you know. And okay, that's that's perhaps can be seen as a naive viewpoint, but I think there's a lot of value in being naive. 
You know, totally people agree. people talk about results, but you know what actually constitutes a result. We're very flexible mm, on what right. constitutes a magical result. You know, right. and I I think the thing for me is that anything can produce a result, no matter how silly it is. I, I had a friend who who uh, her boyfriend was a tower reader, and, and he had this set of Crowley, you know, set of Fosbeck. She was very scared of Fosbeck, and I remember her telling me she had they had a big brow one night, and they through these soft tarot cards across the floor and and then looked at them and the devil card kind of like stuck out and, and looked at her and she was like oh, it's like an ink blot test you know she went into a kind of like shock thing and afterwards she was fine about it you know huh. but she kind of like she had that really intense reaction sometimes and i think that's something that's kind of hard to put into words sometimes but is very important in in terms of a magical worldview, it's just that willingness to accept the bizarre, the abnormal, strange coincidences, you know. And I don't think it does does any good to theorize it too much. You mentioned that you were studying psychology in school, yeah. so it's like, I'm assuming that it was a lot of Jungian psychology? There was some Jungian psychology. I taught, I think I taught Jung to undergraduates, actually. I'm not a fan of Jung at all. Yes. Really problematic, you know, quite racist. I. I didn't know that Young was racist. Yeah. But but the things that you're talking about, which is, you know, like us making stories yeah. and the human need to make stories out of, you know, like when your friend saw that devil card right there, yeah. that sounds very much like what people think about when they think, oh, Young, mm. you know? Well, it's it's about narrative making, you know, we, yeah. we're creatures of, of pattern making. We recognize patterns, you know, you if you're doing divination, it's, it's basically about um, allowing patterns and nuances to emerge out of, out of you know, whether you're looking at a tarot card and creating a story about it or just looking at the clouds and thinking, yeah, that one looks a bit like Donald Trump's face. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. And I think this is why fiction really works well as a magical vehicle, because fiction can enliven a place and make you see it in a way that you haven't seen it before. And again, this is, this you know, this goes back to my very early experiences when I was at the um, Polytechnic studying psychology. That's when I did my first Lovecraftian. Rituals. Over the years, the work of H.P. Lovecraft covered many themes, including superstition, religion, fate, forbidden knowledge, civilization under threat, the risk of a scientific era, and race, ethnicity, and class. But what made Lovecraft's work so recognizable was his use of cosmicism, the philosophy that what we consider as ordinary life is nothing more than a thin layer covering reality, a reality that is so alien and abstract to us that even attempting to understand it would drive an ordinary person insane. One of Lovecraft's most celebrated stories is The Call of Cthulhu, which follows an all-male cult that sacrificed women and children in the names of the gods they worship, the Great Old Ones. When members of this cult are eventually arrested, they find out that the cult awaits the return of the Great Cthulhu. Please explain to me why people are so into this Lovecraftian fiction as magic thing. To me, like, I don't understand it. So what am I missing? Okay, well, I started reading Lovecraft in my late teens. And I think what really put the hook in me was Lovecraft's descriptions of place, of, of nature as being this kind of like dangerous, you know, wild place. You, you go out and there's, there's kind of like, you know, like stone circles on the hills, but just just his idea of, of the landscape being alive and, and somehow threatening. And I was living at the time in a little village on the, on the end of a huge mountain range. And I used to go walking in the mountains. Walking alone across hills and mountains just gave me this sense of the vastness of nature. 
and the aloneness of nature and again this idea that you know if you're in the right frame of mind and anything can open up to you you know strange experiences because there was nobody to tell me oh look after magic bad you know this this is why aeons before the internet it just seemed a natural thing to me um, to kind of take Lovecraft into it, into a magical paradigm and, and try and kind of like enter into a relationship with some of his great old ones that I saw as kind of like at the time as being encapsulations of the forces of nature, you know, of man's fear of nature, if you like. Right. Um, I don't think Love, Lovecraft's, it is magical, but in the same way that um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books are magical. Or Harry Potter. Or Harry Potter, or, or any kind of fiction. And what it does is, it, uh, you know, I, I would like go into a place and think, yeah, this is really Lovecraftian. We've got kind of twisted trees and twisted teeth and, you know, or old disused factories. And it would allow me to kind of like, almost like, again, enter into that mind state where you can feel magic around you in a way that if you're making that hard distinction between what's real and what's fictional, or what's real and what's magical it's, it's kind of hard to do really. magic is more the state of mind than the actual whether or not you know this is based upon like Lovecraftian stuff mm -hmm. Harry Potter stuff or like the Bible or whatever else or the Tree of Solomon or, or the you know the, the Tantra Loka your, your state of mind does matter enormously that I can accept because yeah. I think anybody who's d seen any sort of thing or done psychology studies will know that mm. mindset is everything. Yeah. And of course, um, art explores this and even, you know, courts of law are just like the human recollection, the human mind is so malleable and so flexible. They don't even take like firsthand witness like testimony anymore. You know, like the mind can make stuff up based on basically stress, based upon being in a wacky situation. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can shape your own bodily experiences according to what's in your head. Oh, this is something that fascinated me about chakras, if I can leap from Lovecraft yeah, to chakras. Yeah, yeah. Is that, you know, in the West we have seven chakras. And they have colours. Everybody knows about them, and dogs have chakras, and cats have chakras. <laughs> That's and right. Uh, and people get really upset. And I know I've had these arguments by saying, well, actually, they're not really. Of course they're real, you know, I've experienced my Willardara chakra opening and I've sensed it and blah blah blah. How can you say it's not real? And I said, well, if you look in the ancient tantric texts, which are now being retranslated, you find lots of different tantra chakra systems. You know, eight chakras, ten chakras, twenty-three chakras, three chakras. There's some texts that have chakras in your, your palms, right? Yeah. Or in or in, in your penis if if you're a man, or in your <gasps> vagina if you're a woman. Like a little one? Or lots of little ones. Lots of little, lots of little ones. They're not Indian texts, I have to say. They're, they're kind of Western texts. Mm. Which I thought was a real silly idea myself, but <laughs> there you go. You know. What I'm suggesting is that um, you internalize one of these schemas. And with chakras, you don't need to you know, read a book about chakras to have chakra experiences, because they're floating around everywhere. You know, you've got chakra teas and chakra milkshakes and you know, chakra apps. And they're just part of culture, you know, and you internalize this stuff almost unconsciously. And then you start having experiences that reflect that, you know. And it's the same with doing the middle pillar. You know, you internalize the middle pillar exercise, and then you have experiences that fit that model. I think it's, that's, that's something amazing about the human brain, that we can kind of like train our, our bod bodies to experience things in a, in a way that's something that's come 
know, out of a book or what our teachers told us or we've just absorbed out of the general kind of like cultural flow. Have you taken an MBTI personality test before? I don't know. I hate all that stuff. I, so <laughs> I have the personality that doesn't like doing personality tests. <laughs> okay, definitely not an INFJ. The reason why I bring up these personality tests is because mm. it's basically a way for people who are not like really into magic mm -hmm. to categorize people and to try to explain the way that they think, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like mainstream corporate America uses these personality tests. Sure, for to, job interviews and all that. Job interviews and stuff. stuff like that. Yeah. So, basically now that we've categorized people into 16 types, right? Mm -hmm. We could almost see them as like 16 different types of energies, right? So, would you... Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go with that idea for the duration of this interview. Yes. Well, I guess my my thing is that, okay, is it that because, just like the MBTI thing, chakras, we were just like, oh, there's seven of them, and they have like a, a certain sort of megahertz of sound, and they have a, you know, like color and stuff like that. It's because we've been told that, that we mold ourselves yeah. to that. Yeah. You've, you know, you've absorbed it, and it's, it's there unconsciously. So, I mean, you know, before I, I, I started reading about um, the different chakra schemas in, in classical tantra, I had chakra experiences and kundalini experiences. That, and again, this was interesting because they, in a way, they conformed to what I'd already unconsciously picked up, but in some ways they didn't. So I had, I had a kundalini experience in 1984, and you know, all the, all the texts written to come up 20th century onwards say, oh, kundalini goes up the spine. If it comes down, that's really bad. And I had a downward combined experience, you know, with this idea. Can you tell the audience what is a Kundalini? Um, again, it's a really complicated subject. In in a lot of Western texts, uh, dating from the early nineteenth century onwards, it's this idea of a dormant energy that is kind of like down in your spine and through uh, a variety of means, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Why, why would anybody want a Kundalini? Because uh, it, it's, it's become associated with, with spiritual awakening and becoming an enlightened master and all that shit. Why would energy traveling up or down your spine lead to spiritual awakening? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I don't think it does necessarily. Okay. But it's an, it's an intense physical experience that has got a lot of, kind of like, um, spiritual baggage added to it. Ah. And I had some of these intense physical experiences, internalized a lot of stuff from people I saw as authorities. Mm. And when I started having experiences that didn't conform to what those what I'd accepted, I started actually thinking, yeah, well, maybe these people don't have it all, you know. Because I've been told certain mm. things and I'd gone along for a long time in my occult career and just accepted what authorities had told me. Yeah. You know, like I was, uh, before I got into chaos magic, I was a witch. You were kicked out of a coven. Uh, yeah. Well, kicked out and then brought back in. Uh, I, I joined a coven in 1981. Uh, I, I think they saw that I was, you know, nerdy kid, very obsessed with, with, with magic, and, and, and they basically gave me an initiation into the coven. And then a few days later said, oh, no, we made a mistake. You're not really suited up for magic. You know, you're not cut out for it. If you, if you continue down this path, you're going to go mad. You're not right for us. Out the door. And that was kind of like... Oh, they were worried for you. Well, it's, there's more to it. Uh, and I was kind of really shocked and, uh -huh. and properly run off and, and worked on a kibbutz for six months in Israel. Was that a magical experience? Yeah, it was, because of course, you know, I, did, I didn't take that advice to continue doing, you know, magical shit. 
And uh, a kibbutz for our audience, what is that? Uh, kibbutz is a kind of like a farm in Israel where people work communally. I was over there during the Falklands War. Spent six months picking oranges and milking cows and stuff like that. Wow. Uh, I came back because um, Israel invaded the Lebanon in 1982. Oh yeah, that war. Um, and so when when the tanks were going into Lebanon, I was I was at um, one of the airports in Israel, kind of waved my passport, saying, "How are you?" Have you seen that movie Waltz with Bashar? When I was in Komla, Waltz, the side of the other summit, we met Hilir Kodpito. It's about the war, yeah. and the reason why I bring it up is that it's basically the recollection of a guy or two guys who were in the war, and yeah. it's like they remember different things, and mm-hmm. they don't know what's fact and what they've imagined. Yeah. So that reminds me of the conversation that we were having, the malleability mm-hmm. of the human mind. Yeah. So you were on the kibbutz. I think I, I redid the um, Order of the Cubic Stone course, and I also did Libra MMM, which is the, you know, the training course of the IOT. Wow, um, I mean, I had, I had some interesting experiences out there. I was uh, meditating one day and uh, the siren went and we had all had to go in the air raid shelters and we got rocketed for 20 minutes. I came back from uh, Israel, this would be about 1982, and I was living in a little village in Lincolnshire, very rural, and I just thought, okay, no magic, can mm-hmm. have a rest, you know, just kick back, chill out kind of thing. And two things happened. One is that I started having dreams about Kali, mm, you know, right. the Indian goddess Kali, which was like a recurring dream. Mm. Um, night after night, the same thing, meeting Kali in the burning grounds, which is kind of like the you know, place where they burn all the corpses in India. And that's kind of what put the, the tantra up in me, because I was kind of like, what the fuck's going on here? Because I'd, I'd never really... Yeah, I'd read some theosophical material about India, and I'd read some Indian philosophy, uh, as you do when you, you know, you read a lot of occult books. But I never really felt drawn to it. Mm. And you know, I, I probably knew who Carly was, but I had, I had no kind of—I wasn't kind of like. Oh, you know. yeah. It was kind of out of the blue. And again, because I, I was cut off from any kind of like occult friendship network. Um, so I, I was completely thrown back onto my own resources, so I just kind of like wrote down this dream and, and read it as a path working, and that intensified the dream. And the whole thing went on for about a week. Can I just mention that with the, the Wiccan stuff, the, yeah. witch, the Witchcraft Coven, and with Kali, it's like you have a pretty um, tight relationship with goddesses. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that um, I think led, led eventually to my kind of focusing on Tantra. So I did all this stuff, and um, I got a job in uh, Nottingham. Mm-hmm. I was trained to be a psychiatric nurse, again, the psychology background. And it was while I was in Nottingham, and I started to meet other people around on the occult scene, and I got back in contact with the people in the coven, and they were kind of like, oh, well, you know, we've been monitoring your progress. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, we, you know we, we think you're in a, in a better frame of mind now. Would you like to come back in the coven? And I was kind of like, yes, I would. I rejoined the Witch Coven, this is about 1983 now, um, and worked with them for a few years. Uh, but by that time, the, the, the sort of whole chaos magic thing was, was starting to be of increasing interest for me. And I kind of thought, eventually, I kind of made a break with witchcraft. Although some of my Wiccan friends still say, Oh, we still think of you as a witch, Phil, which is lovely. Why did you break from the Wiccan tradition? I started occupational therapy training. Occupational therapy training is, I would say, a really good um, training to be for intramatic 
because you get to do loads of cool stuff like drama therapy, group dynamics training, um, making stuff. You know, like um, we did woodworking, and and I got really, really into drama therapy. And I started going back to the coven and said, "Hey, we should do some of this drama therapy stuff. It's really cool." And they were like, "No, we're not going to do." It's that. Foreboding. Well, <laughs> it's not part of our tradition. Which I kind of later thought, well, yeah, they were probably a bit scared because it was outside their experience. And I got a, a bit kind of like annoyed with this. And the other thing that I found increasingly hard to deal with, and you might find this strange now talking to me, is that they were extremely, extremely secretive. I mean, if I had occult books, I wasn't allowed. I was told not to have them on open display. I wasn't allowed. You're not to wear any occult jewellery. If you're at a party, and other people start talking to you about the occult, you, you have to run away. <laughs> so it's like really, really secretive. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. And I, I really started to chafe at this, because as I got more confident, I, I realised that I enjoyed talking to people about magic. I mean, I was completely obsessed by it, so obviously I wanted to, you know, talk about it with my mates. And this kind of like emphasis on utter secrecy just started to feel really wrong to me. Isn't that one of the pillars of witchcraft, though? It's to, what is it, to dare, to, to know, to will, to keep silent. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, come on, no. You can only go so far with that. How it finally came to her head was that the high priestess got it into her head that she was going to give birth to this magical king, like a witch king kind of thing. Wait, give birth? Yeah, she was, you know, she was having a baby. Um, oh, literally give birth. Li literally give birth, and, and it... You know, this, this kid was going to be the next magical king of, of the witches in Britain. I think she was going to be bonkers. You know? Wow, that's And, such a and we, we did this ritual, and the day of the ritual, a lot of a lot of you know top people from that particular network of witches had been invited, and there was this huge argument. And I was like, oh, uh oh, I don't want to get into a ritual with people who've been arguing all day and right. calling each other blah and whatever. Just bad you know? vibes. And. Yeah. Um, but I did it because I felt I had to support what I had mm -hmm. uh, But by, by the end of the ritual, I just thought, I want out. No, I want out of here. But of course, it was two o'clock in the morning. There was no way I could get out of there. So I went and laid down in one of the spare rooms. And I kind of put myself into a trance, you know, just to get away. It was the only way I could think of getting out of the situation. So the next thing I know, there's this very large woman sitting on top of me with Nathame in my face, you know, drawing a pentagram off me and I'm going, what's going, what the fuck is going on? And she goes, oh, we decided you were possessed by demons. And I was like, really? Really? You know, they made this huge drama out of nothing. I was just like lying down trying to get out of it. And then about two days later, I got a letter from them saying, um, oh, we were driving somewhere. They were, they were on their way to some occult gig or something. And we got an astral message that you were under attack by demons. So we actually pulled the car over and did a ritual on the hard shoulder of the motorway. And I was like, you're fucking mad. And that's when I made my final break with, with the coven. Although I, I kept doing a lot of wicked stuff. But I, and I, by that time I'd got into Eris, you know, the Discordian goddess of chaos. Tell me about her. Um, okay, Discordianism is a thing that started off in the 1950s, I think, in America. Uh, it was promoted by Robert Anton Wilson, his book Illuminatus, which of course I read. Um, I never really went for Robert Anton Wilson in a big way, but I really like this idea of this discordian concept. 
there's this whole thing with um, I think these three goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena, they, they get this. Um, it was a shepherd boy called Paris, and they have this big competition to say, right. you know, who's the fairest goddess? And and Eris isn't invited, and she's a bit pissed off by not being invited. So she gets this uh, golden apple with Callisti, which is Greek for the prettiest one, and she like lobs it into the into the kind of like sacred grove where this goddess beauty competition is going on, and lobs it one into there, and it says to the prettiest one, and they all say it's for her, for them, and they have a big fight about it. That eventually leads to the Trojan War. The way I started to think about Ares was she's kind of like a goddess that anybody can call on. And a lot of my friends in New York who were kind of like alternative people and a bit punky really got into this idea of this zany goddess of chaos. I had a friend whose who's, uh, bike was stolen from outside the university. And uh, she put a big, and this was a very Christian university, you know, it's a kind of Christian college. And she put a notice on the wall saying, well, my bike's been stolen, but what you don't realise is I'm an Arisian witch. I'm a devoted heiress, and the bike is my familiar. And if it's not returned, then, well, I wouldn't like to think that anything bad would happen to you, but you might find your ballpoint pen exploding and putting ink all over your shirt. And then, lo and behold, in a couple of days' time, the bike came back. What I saw about Chaos Magic, which was... You know, there, there have been, by the mid 80s, there have been more texts written about it, and there were people writing about it in the little magazines we used to have back in those days. Was that chaos magic was a kind of way of bringing things into the occult that wasn't necessarily occult, if you see what I mean. The, the Wiccan Coven I've been a member of were like not interested in drama therapy at all. I saw chaos magic as a space where I could explore how drama and ritual could come together in a very magical way. I mean, it sounds obvious now. There's a huge connection, obviously, between theatre, drama and a magical ritual. But then the people who I'd been hanging around with didn't want to explore that connection. When I think of chaos magic, I think of, let's not do the drawing out the sword in an exact way or shuffling no. your feet, because that's not the important part. No. So when I think of chaos magic, it's almost like stripped down like to its very core. Um, yeah, you can do that, and again with Chaos Magic you have different approaches, and some approaches have become, um, if you like, accepted, because people have written books about them, and some have kind of like sunk back into being not so widely known, because, and so there's, yeah, there's the whole stripping everything down to its core approach, but, you know, an approach I really like was, if you're going to do a ritual, you might as well give it your best shot, you know. Like, go all out. Go all go out. Go hardcore. And, you know... If, if you're going to enter into this mind space where the goddesses and the gods are real, mm -hmm. then, you know, put your best makeup on, put your best frock on, give them a good show, and they might, you know, look kind upon you in the future, you know, dress up, you know. So it's almost like going, like, full glam drag. Oh, God, completely, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I always wanted a robe full of sequins, and I actually managed to get one. That's so cool. Yeah. Did you feel magical in it? Well, I think you can feel magical in anything, but I was in one group and it was all about you had to have a black robe and I, I turned up in a, um, an off-the-shoulder blue number that belonged to one of my ex-girlfriends and they were all kind of like, that's not the proper robe. You were working it. I love it. Yeah. Magicians love arguments about what's proper and what's not proper, what's right and what's not. What's a valid technique and what's not a valid technique, but... All the time people say, oh, well, you know, it works. But as I say, anything could be made to work.
No. And if you if you want to invoke Scrooge McDuck for a huge pile of cash, and it works, then or if it doesn't work, but you More enjoy cash. it anyway, it's it's all about you and your own personal practice in the end. A lot of like newbie witch books now. Yeah. They're about. You know, like your morning tea can be turned into a magic ritual, and it's yeah, magic. But there's also like a growing, you know, faction of witches who are just like, that's not magic. That's not magical. Maybe not magical enough, but that's not effective magic. I think this is an argument that people love to have. But you know, if it gets you there, then who can really complain? There does seem to be a resurgence of like. There's a, the resurgence is of orthopraxy. Versus uh, heteropraxy, if you like. Now, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on. I, I get this, this a lot with. Um, I mean, I can see good reasons for wanting to do stuff in a very traditional manner. Mm. Um, and I can see good reasons for not wanting to bother. But if we go back to this essential point about mindset, it's it's what gets you off, it what gets you in the zone that matters, ultimately for me. I like doing it, I like taking a very traditional, if you like, not traditional, but classical approach to my tantra practice. Mm -hmm. It works for me. I like that. I enjoy the intellectual challenge of having to get engaged with obscure 7th century Indian philosophers. It's the way my mind works. You know, I like that stuff. It's not for everybody. You know, if someone else wants to pick up a, um, a book on, um, you know, I don't know, witchcraft for newbies and have a magical cup of tea in the morning, then... I don't see a problem. I wouldn't say, oh, it's not logical. You know. Because, you know, the, the whole, what's important for me is getting yourself into that, if you like, mental space, that emotional space where you can accept things that are outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. If that involves having a cup of tea or painting your nails in Putting a magical way, <laughs> then, yeah. Offer it, you know, and if other people say, Oh, you stupid, tell them that. Tell them, polite. Tell them Phil said that they're wrong. <laughs> it's <know>. whatever. <laughs> it's whatever turns you on. I mean, I've actually been to a, a workshop many years ago called Enlightenment Through Lipstick. Oh my god, where was I? What did they say in this? I forget, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I do remember you saying in one of the interviews that for you, it's about the emotional engagement. Yes, I think emotional engagement is, is central. And that yeah. sounds like a very feminine energy thing to do, according to today's society. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, because it's sort of like, okay, I think a lot of people, when they think about chaos magic, at least on the surface, it's like a very male-centered, intellectual oh sort God, of Oh, God, yeah. It's all, it's all guys who dress in black and, and have eight-grade chaos stars. On, on they wear the pentagrams. They wear the upside-down pentagrams, and like, they look tough, because chaos magic is tough. And Yeah, I've always been the one in the back going... Actually, like, even when you were giving interviews, these are interviews that I listened to from, like, years mm. ago before you were, like, like totally diving deep into the Tantra thing. Yeah. And even then, I was just like, what you're talking about doesn't sound like what I stereotyped as chaos magic. No. Even then. Mm. But, like I say, you know, stereotypes don't give us the whole picture. Mm. Stereotypes of Tantra don't really give us anything on, the, on what it's really about. Stereotypes of, of chaos magic don't really tell the full story. Okay, guys, so we're back. We took a little break. So, you know, the conversation that we were having mm -hmm. of the camera, which I think is so interesting, it was based upon this interview that I listened to 
that you gave with the guy whose name that we forgot. Jairus, I think. Maybe? Yeah, Sorry, I think so. again. Did the big interview with Jairus. Yeah, it was like six, it was great. Yeah. Um, I'll definitely link it down below. But um, you were talking about how you like to think of yourself into the idea behind the practice. Oh, we were talking about how you're doing magic from a heart space. Yeah. You're talking about heart space. Can you explain more of that? Um, I think one of the problems of, of modern magic is that it has uh, very much accented the, the intellectual, the cognitive, the thinking. Mm -hmm. And feeling is really important for me. It's primary, yeah? Because magic for me is, is about a particular way of feeling, it's a, a particular way of relating to the world. And the heart space practice, which is something that's emerged out of my tantra practice, is very much about making space for the extraordinary within the ordinary, not within the everyday. Magic is not... The, the way I was, if you like, brought up with a lot of my magical practice in the past was that, oh, you've got the everyday world and you've got magic, which is kind of up there right. or out there somewhere, but it's, the two are not joined. What I increasingly became interested in as, as I progressed was this idea that, well, actually, magic is everywhere. Um, a lot of it is about feeling yourself and relating to other people. It can be difficult to put into words, but I think it's extremely important and it doesn't perhaps get the intention attention. Like that just struck me, I'm getting chills right now. That reminds me of this TED talk given by Brené Brown, where she talks about authenticity and vulnerability. Yeah. And how vulnerability is one of the strongest things mm. that a human being can experience. Yeah. Um, where you're being open-hearted and the word courage, like the root of the word courage comes from the French word heart. Mm -hmm. And it's to tell your story, your narrative, honestly. And the opposite of vulnerability is fitting in. Yeah. The opposite of vulnerability is shame. Um, so when you're speaking the truth of who you are, that is truly com coming from a heart space. And when you say that you want to be the idea behind the practice, mm -hmm. you're... In, in a way, that's where the intellect and the practice come together. Yeah. Because the, the example I was talking about off camera was, in a lot of my tantra practice, I'm reciting these really beautiful poems that are addressing particular goddesses, uh, like Lolita, for example, she's a very playful goddess, she's one of the central goddesses of the particular tantric tradition that I work in. Um, these poems extel her beauties. I know what beautiful is, from you know my perspective, but I want to know what Indian classical ideas are beautiful. So I started to get into uh, Indian poetry and Indian poetic theory and the construction of metaphors and you know, how these things were oppressed and the, the place that beauty had in Indian culture. And I discovered this kind of massive world that I hadn't really been aware of. And I had to do a lot of research and a lot of reading and then I, I came back to these poems. And because I'd done that kind of like very intellectual um, journey into Indian poetry and, and how it works. Like the historical. The historical. Yeah. That gave me a deeper appreciation uh, of what this poetry was about. Ah, and I would, I, would, I, would, I you know, I kind of walk around and have a little bit of it in my head and um, I sometimes have these 
very strong feelings that the, the goddess has enfolded me in her arms and that she's just present in the trees and in the path and in the, the glinting of water drops on a street corner and everything becomes alive and, and kind of like vibrational and beautiful you know and it's almost overwhelming at times and being able to express that vulnerability i think is very important in a magical worldview this is one of the first times i'm hearing that doing this intellectual kind of like pre-study mm -hmm. can lead to deeper emotional connection. Oh, completely, yeah. So when you're doing this visualization, is it like you're no longer like Phil? You're like almost in the mindset of, let's no, say... No, I'm still me. You're still you. I'm still me, but mm -hmm. I've added something, if you like. Like a, a, an additional perspective. Additional perspective, a different perspective, yeah. Like an overlay, a filter. Yeah. And again, it's sometimes that can take a lot of intellectual spade work. But if it allows you to have a, a, a deeper, more resonant, more vibrant, you know, emotional experience, mm. it's kind of like you know you. We watch films, mm. and we know they're not real, yeah. but we get upset. But if you're watching a kind of horror film, and there's a guy coming, there's a woman in the bathroom, and there's a guy coming behind her with a knife, and you go, <gasps> right now, you know. And I think magical traditions can take us the same in the same way. You know, you, you suspend your disbelief you suspend your skepticism if you like you you enter a, a space where you can allow yourself to feel things that you wouldn't perhaps all, all normally feel a lot of people they're afraid to get into that heart space mm. you know it's like it's just like youth culture today it's you know like nobody dates it's like hookup culture mm. you know and people are just like i don't even want to deal with hookup culture i'm just gonna like be single and celibate whatever mm. People are afraid to get close and commit to anything. Mm -hmm. You know, like, have you heard of ghosting? Like, when you don't text back people? No. Oh my god, it's like a huge thing right now where people just don't want to get close, so they just stop responding. So people are afraid to be vulnerable, and yet you're basically suggesting that that's how you get into, like, real magic. Yeah, I think so. To kind of, like, full-heartedly mm -hmm. plunge yourself into another perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be. And to develop empathy. Yeah. Um, That's hard to do. It is hard to do. I had a partner many years ago who was, um, I guess, a very out flamboyant gay man. Mm. Anytime he, he hooked up with somebody, even if it was on like a quick knee trembler mm -hmm. know, in a toilet somewhere, mm -hmm. he'd tell everybody. And, and I just thought, there's something amazing here. It's kind of like, he wasn't parceling off bits of his experience. If everybody knows what I'm like, then I can't be ashamed. He was kind of like taking something that, that people then, in, in 1980s UK, would, would have seen as something a bit shameful, and just telling everybody, no, I don't care, you know, what you think of me. I have to shag with my old friends and things like that. And I thought, this is wonderful. This is, you know, in, in displaying yourself as vulnerable, you can acquire a strength. You've mentioned that if a magician or a ritual moves you, you cry. Yeah, I often do. And in fact, you said that um, one of the criteria of a good magician is, can they evoke emotion from you when yeah. they're doing ritual? You know, I quite often get into a really vulnerable heart space after ritual. You know, I'm, I'm exhausted, I'm enlivened, and I cry. And I think that's absolutely fine. And that's, that, for me, is part of the ritual, you know? I, I like that. That 
but magic as vulnerability. So it's almost like when you think of like very enlightened or magical people, these are wholehearted, vulnerable, open people. Yeah. And because they're so wholehearted and open, they are constantly in the mindset to experience wackiness because to them, wacky is just part of who they are. Yeah. Well, that sounds so simple and yet it's so hard to do. It's something that's hard to write about. It's very I, visceral. In, in the, the book I've just written, um, give you one example. There's an article I wrote about, I think back in about 1987, it's a Chaos Magic article and it's it's very much about me trying to um, put myself together after, after an unhappy love affair and, and deal with, you know, fantasies, fantasies of reconciliation and fantasies of, oh, wouldn't it be great if this happened or wouldn't it be bad if that happened? The article doesn't really say that. It's very sort of chaos magic, do this, do this, do this, do this. But what I've said in the book is actually this is me trying to recover from an unhappy love affair. You mentioned that you're writing a book right now. Or I've just finished it. You've yeah. just finished just it. Just gone to Original Falcon. Hopefully it will be out in the fall. And uh, it has a really cute name. Heinz Varieties. Heinz Varieties. Yeah. So what's this book going to be about? Um, it's basically an anthology. A subtitle selected essay is 1985 to 2019. And it's, it's, what I've done is I've kind of divided it into sections. So there's a section on paganism because um, I used to run a pagan magazine called Pagan News. There's a section on sexuality where I talk about various ideas about sex magic and queer paganism and so forth. Um, there's a section on chaos magic, a section on tantra. And what I've tried to do is, is select articles that I've written over a space of years to show how my ideas have changed. Uh, I've also provided some little notes about the article, tried to say, well, this is what was going through my head or heart when I was writing this. Uh, and I've also done some kind of autobiographical essays about how I got into Tantra or, or what my experience of, of, of being a queer person was in and how that's affected my magic. The first things I actually published was a, uh, what's now called the Urban Shaman Trilogy. Which was in in the mid eighties, mm -hmm. and that was three little books on urban shamanism. Ah, okay. And then I did the first version of Prime Chaos, mm -hmm. which I think came out in ninety one. And then in ninety four, ninety five, when I got the deal with uh, New Falcon Publications, as they were then, uh, the first book they did was Condensed Chaos, which was basically two little chapbooks, one called Condensed Chaos, one called Chaos Services, with a whole bunch of other stuff just thrown in. So many people cite Condensed Chaos as being one of the pivotal books yeah, of Chaos really Magic. I embarrassed about that. <laughs> I went through my Chaos phase, if you like, um, and I, I wrote, I want, I've always, I always wanted to write a book, you know, ever since mm. early days. And a lot of people oh, get the right book. I wanted to, and I, I think I was kind of like, yeah, Condensed Chaos was okay, but it was a bit thrown together. Mm. I think I got six. They said, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll publish it, but we want another 60,000 words and can you have it done in six months' time? And I was kind of like, oh shit. And I just threw, threw a lot of stuff into it, perhaps without much thought. So I, it's, you know, I, I kind of reread it occasionally. I think, yeah, there's some good bits in it. I think a lot of people, they, they found that spoke to them because it was accessible. Yeah. And, you know, like compared to some other Chaos Magic books, mm. it was something that was 
easy to read and easy to digest and kind of popularized mm. Chaos Magic. You know, Prime Chaos kind of followed it, although, again, that had been a version of it before then. And, and I think Prime Chaos was in, in some ways a slightly more interesting book because I, I got more into the whole kind of like, you know, connection between drama and ritual, which I was very interested in. I actually think my favourite is the Pseudonomicon, which is the Lovecraftian book, which is like really short. By the late 90s, I'd kind of lost interest in the whole thing. And I think this is partly where I have a slight problem with Chaos Magic, because I still get now people say, oh, we'd like you to write something about Chaos Magic, we'd like, da, 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 da. we want to interview about Chaos Magic. But that was 20 years ago, man. You know, you've moved on. I've moved on, you know. I got bored with it. You know. I wanted to do something different. And it kind of annoys me that I'm still... I mean, that's understandable. That's understandable. You know, and we kind of touched on queer magic. Yeah. How has queer magic been a threat in your life? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, again, I'm talking about my own experience. I'm not going to generalize about how it's been for others, because I know, for example, that um, people's experience of being, say, gay witches in the US is very different from mine in the UK. Mm -hmm in the 1980s, but and I started to um, struggle with my sexual awareness. What happened in the in the mid-80s was that there was a kind of resurgence of pagan activism in the UK, and I know people are perhaps aware of the Pagan Federation nowadays, but there was this other grassroots network called Pagan Link, mm -hmm. which was definitely not the Pagan Federation, which became very active. Um, a lot of pagan like activists were very much about let's get pagans together and let's get active and let's get doing stuff. And one of the things that arose out of that was, um, was started by a friend of mine was Hoblink. And Hoblink was, I think, I forget what the acronym was, but it was for um, gay, lesbian, transgender, and bisexual pagans. And it was our, like our own space. Because as far as the mainstream cult was, was concerned, as I say, if you weren't heterosexual, there was a lot of kind of like homophobia which was legitimated through occult discourses about... Wasn't Crowley bisexual? Yeah, well a lot of people had a problem with Crowley. Oh. Mm. Hmm. That's all changing now, which mm -hmm. I think is good. Um, but w because it was kind of difficult to be uh, a queer magician within mainstream folk spaces, what happened was people started hiving off and creating their own queer spaces. And in the late 90s, um, some friends of mine started Queer Pagan Camp, which was a safe space to be openly queer and to be into paganism or, or magic of whatever stripe. Their idea of queer was possibly different to people in, in the United States' idea of queerness, because what's interesting about queerness is you can see queerness as an umbrella term for people of different sexualities, LGBTI, whatever. Or you can see it as something different. So often people who identify as queer say, well, I'm not gay, I'm not lesbian, I'm not bisexual, I'm queer. It's a kind of like a different kind of identity. It's an identity where, you know, queer in, in the old English sense is anything that's odd or not quite normal or strange. And I think queerness and magic come together in that kind of definition. It's anything that is not normal or it's a bit bizarre, it's a bit strange. I love Queer Pagan Camp because um, if you wanted to do, say, workshops and enlightenment through lipstick or get people dragging up to do a ritual, then it was fine. 
that's amazing because again, it's a sort of vulnerability, right? It's like yeah. wholehearted, the story of who you actually are. Well, it's a, it's about allowing a, a space for all the things. And there was, with, you know, I only went to Queer Taken Camp a few times, but the rituals I did, the people I met were amazing and very a- accepting because they'd often they'd been in. in Taking the court spaces where they weren't accepted, or if they weren't accepted, they knew that people were going to lunch or drink went behind the back. Tricky. If you look at a lot of um, neo tantra or sacred sex stuff nowadays, it's all very queer friendly. But again, in the seventies and eighties, it wasn't. There was one book uh, I think called Sexual Secrets by Nick Douglas and Penny Slinger, and they actually said in their first edition that gay men shouldn't have sex; they should use yoga to overcome their sexual impulses. Oh, Wait, didn't you mention that you're off. a kundalini? It didn't go from the base up. It yeah, went it, went, from... it went down, yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting because in a lot of the classical texts that is more normative. Uh-huh. But it's only in the a lot of the, I think, very Western-influenced texts, or certainly the Hatha Yoga texts, in the modern times where you get this idea that a downward... There's one writer, um, Charles Ledbetter, wrote a book on, called The Chakras, and he talks about the downward surges being, you know, it's like going from the spiritual to the... The fleshy, Ooh, but it's all, naughty, naughty. Oh, it's all dangerous. And, you know, naughty, naughty. if you have a downward Kundalini surge, you become a sex pervert, hmm. which I think is a bit ironic considering who he was. This um, queer magic, it was an acceptance of the flesh, right? Yeah, very much so. An acceptance of the flesh, an acceptance of um, again, this, this idea of vulnerability, hmm. you know, and, and finding strength in that, you know, just. From our talk and the interviews that I've listened that you've done, um, there seems to be this, I can see almost like this Venn diagram, like three circles, right? So one is about needing that sort of intellectual sharpness mm-hmm. and rigor, yeah. the history and stuff. Then you if also, you want. No, you if you want, have. but it, it seems as though that helps you mm. with this other circle, which is about emotional intelligence in a yeah. way, like knowing yourself, um, being self-aware, but then there's this third circle. Incredibly cir- difficult, of course. Very difficult. I mean, <laughs> I think we all struggle with it until the day we die. Yeah. And then there's this third circle of like, almost like ecological awareness, like how you fit into the context, whether yeah. it's a group, this world, like you mentioned, you see goddesses everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you're not just you, you're a part of the system. And it's only when these three circles overlap, that like little sliver, mm-hmm. where it's like in the middle, that's like that sweet spot. That's like that magic sweet spot. That's a very nice way of putting it. I mean, I'm, the way that you've described it, I can just see it. And the thing is, is that most people, they can do like maybe one or two at a time, but to get all three together, that takes years of practice. And now I'm starting to think, this is why it's important to just do it. Yeah. Because you can't get all three circles to kind of like move in unison until you've actually done it for like, I think um, Jake Stratton Kent, he was talking about, you know, you know, you do something for 10 years, you know, like you... You kind of like burn your fingers and stuff like that, but then you know you learn from it. But it's not just like you can do it for one month and that's it. I I think that's that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I remember one of my tantra teachers saying to me, "Oh, it'll take you about ten years before this stuff starts to make sense." Ten thousand know? hour rule. And know? I was like, Christ, you know, ten, 10 years. You know? And I think that can be a kind of like very daunting prospect mm. in terms of commitment. You know, it's it's very daunting to think, oh, I'm going to be doing this for at least 10 years and it's not going to make sense until maybe 10 years or, or even right. longer. And then I think, well, I'll just get on and do it. 
No, don't worry about 10 years. Don't worry about if, whether it makes sense or not. And probably it won't make sense, but that's not important. What are three songs that represent you as a magician? Um, well, Dancing Queen, whatever. <gasps> I love that song! Totally tantric song. Uh, and the film Mamma Mia is amazing. I have, like, one of my favourite magical films. Ooh, I saw the Broadway yeah, show. That is, really it is just, the exuberance is brilliant. Man. So, do you know all of ABBA songs? I'm like obsessed with ABBA. Oh yeah, I love Yeah, ABBA. I love yeah. ABBA. So, yeah, Dancing Queen by ABBA. Um, Power by the Cassandra Complex. And that's mm -hmm. partly because Rodney's an all mate of mine, but I just love his music. Sometimes I meditate with it as a way of revving myself up for the day. You meditate using like high energy. Yeah. Ooh, you can do that, yeah. guys. Yeah, and sisters and I yeah, I do, I, I do a lot of meditation with, with music, just, and it just revs me up. And I think it also brings back memories of watching the bands and or just walking <gasps> down the street someplace. It triggers like an emotional state. Yeah, and you know this is what ritual does. When when you do a ritual. And I've been doing the same rituals for like donkey's years. Yeah. I went through this chaos phase where you do 20 different rituals a week and you know, you never do them again and they're all, actually they don't, yeah, stick, it and they don't it. stick in your mind. Right. And, but there's some rituals I've been doing again and again and again. And what happens is that they can trigger memories of when you've done them previously. Mm. And it all kind of like melds together. That's an amazing point that you bring up. Like, it's not about listening to bell chimes when you're meditating. You want to meditate to music that puts you in that state puts of mind. Puts you in the zone, yeah. Puts you in the zone. Yeah. And it could be anything. It could be yeah. like... I mean, you know, getting yourself ready to go out clubbing. I'm not really a clubbing person. Well, I used to be, but I'm not now. But, you know, that kind of like, I'm going out feeling, you know, that's, that's magic, you know. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Learn something new. You can meditate to not just like peaceful, like waterfall sounds, just oh, anything. Fuck no. <laughs> fuck no. Get your, get your favorite music out and feel that yourself puts getting, you That puts, raises your vibe and yeah. maybe even calms you down. Hey, you know, sometimes when you're listening to like death metal, it calms you down. It calms me there's, down. There's, there's metal yoga now, isn't there? There's people do yoga to death metal or something. There you go. There you go. And Do You Dream in Color by Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson's one of these um, songwriters and musicians who's been very influenced by the occult, but he doesn't do like heavy-handed occult lyrics. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a nice song. So Phil, when's your book coming out? Um, well, tentatively, in the fall, mm -hmm. hopefully. Uh, it'll be original Falcon publications who are doing it. You've written chapbooks, which are like mm. kind of like thin books, yeah. about the chakras and about more Tantra related yeah. materials. So for people in America, mm -hmm. you know, who are going on Amazon looking for these books yeah. and they can't find them, yeah. where can they get them? The, uh, the Chakra series are being exclusively distributed by Trevor's Bookshop of London. Guys, I'm going to link down below uh, to Phil's blog, his other books, to Treadwell's, and his new book, Phil Hines Varieties. Phil, thank you so much for spending all this time talking to me. Hey, it's been a pleasure.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off.